Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national, and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan, and today my guests and I will discuss the benefits of a community-based peer support approach to supporting people recover from addiction. Joining me for the conversation are James Deacon and Sophie McCluskey from the North Wales Recovery Community and social worker Wolf Livingston. Wolf, Sophie, James, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you all doing? Sophie, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. James, how are you doing? Very good as well. Thanks for having me too. Good man. And Wolf, you're coming back. We uh, made an episode some time ago about um, alcohol and other drugs and domestic abuse. abuse yeah, and it's right, a yeah. pleasure to be back again. Thank you very much, Andy. It's a pleasure to have you. And where is everyone? Wolf, where are you at the moment? So I'm um, in, we're, it, we're all in, in a certain part of northwest Wales. Um, so I'm about five miles outside of Bangor towards the mountains. Okay. And Sophie, you're roughly the same sort of area, yeah? Yeah, yeah, quite similar to what Wolf said, five miles out, out of Bangor. <laughs> okay, grand, grand. And that's Bangor, North Wales. There is a Bangor mm. County Down, which is quite close to me, but that's not the same place. Right on. Well, this is the last episode we're going to make before the summer break. We're going to be back in September. Um, so for listeners, in the meantime, if you're looking for uh, something to fill your time, why not catch up on some of the episodes you've missed? This is episode 42, so there's loads to listen to. And if anyone has completed the set, do email me um, on ltsw at basw.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. Now, today we're talking about recovery. And I want to start by asking a sort of big open question to help learn about the process. Wolf, you shared a really helpful article with me to help with some background. Um, And in it, there's a line which states, you cannot commission recovery, but must seek instead to foster environments in which it can thrive. Now that seems like a good place to start. What does it mean to foster an environment in which recovery can thrive? Okay, so I think it's... There's two or three things that just get to that picture and I'll keep them pretty tight. The first is that there's a lot of slightly contested views and different definitions of recovery. Um, but where we come from as a, a group of people is really about what we call peer-to-peer-led recovery. And it's the stuff that goes on kind of after treatment. So this becomes the connection, really. If recovery is about um, individuals who've got lived experience of drug and alcohol use supporting each other in Um, maintaining and building sustainable lifestyles um, and its long-term stuff, then you can't just easily do the normal thing of commission and buy it like a standard treatment service. Um, And if it's different for each individual and it's different for each community, and, and actually recovery communities are unique as well as each individual's recovery journey, then you can't actually just get this as a list of a menu from uh, a manual. You can't prescribe it. You can't say, I want to buy X service and I want it to look like this. um, And therefore a recovery service must look like this. It's actually what the people involved in the service itself go on to develop and want to do themselves. I guess for me, Andy, I was thinking about this, the analogy for me is a bit like a painting. 
you can commission a painting and you can say to someone, I want a big picture of a house or I want a small black and white drawing of a dog, but you can't tell them what the eyes can look like or, or, or what the hair stroke must look like. In the end, that's the creativity of the individual artist. Um, and I think that's what we mean. So, you know, we want people and you need governments to, to give you money and support and say, look, I really like what you're doing, let me help. But I can't, they can't tell us what to do. It's not possible. I suppose you could tell an artist how to, to make their work, but being prescriptive like that is going to really choke the process and you're probably going to end up with a really poor outcome as well. It's a shared, I mean, I'll let James and Sophie talk about it, but it's a shared process. It's a shared journey and, and it's not one that's determined before it starts. You can't deliver it. I think that's, you know, um, uh, James is hugely passionate about this. Go on, James. <laughs> the key thing for me about recovery is about that it needs to grow organically when it was sort of the recovery agenda was introduced by the National Treatment Agency towards the end of the noughties. Um, <clears throat> it was the concept was about building a bridge between treatment services and mutual aid. <clears throat> and it was kind of recognition from the NCA that treatment services hadn't been able to facilitate recovery journeys for people. What we'd done is brought people into treatment, was able to reduce harm, um, you know, bring down the amount of uh, bloodborne viruses, drug-related deaths, etc. But that quite often what should have been the start of someone's uh, recovery journey um, by accessing things like opiates, substitute prescribing, often ended up becoming the end result for people and they were just sort of stuck in treatment for, for 10, 15 years. So it was this idea then that mutual aid has always worked, has always offered people recovery, but there was just a massive disconnect between treatment services and, and sort of mutual aid. So it, it was kind of originally the idea was about sort of building a bridge from mutual aid uh, or from treatment services to mutual aid. But what sort of happened really was that most treatment agencies just then tried to commission recovery and, and sort of force it into this really sort of stilted Monday to Friday, nine to five bracket, which just doesn't work for people really. And that's a sort of medicalized model. Um, would that be right, James? Yeah, very much so. I, I mean, I think a, a key example for that, Andy, is the fact that um, people are discharged from treatment once they achieve abstinence. Um, from the medical point of view, that's the end of the journey. From from a recovery point of view, abstinence is your starting point. So it's quite often this is the time and, and when people need the most support in terms of emotional um, sort of support and, and building coping mechanisms from the life beyond substances. But that's at the point when they're discharged from treatment then. So it, it, it's always been sort of the medical model and the recovery model don't necessarily sit, you know, on top of each other. There is there is quite a disconnect between the two, really. So I, I want to explore that in a bit more detail then, James. So if we're looking at the medical model, if it misses out in social and cultural factors, if it's failing to attend to well-being and long-term life goals, how does the recovery model meet those needs of the of the of the person who's in recovery? I mean, basically, what or, or the way that we kind of sort of um, what we really sort of push or, or what we sort of say to our guys is that once you get yourself clean and sober, it's then about learning to cope with life on life's terms, and it's about building the emotional resilience necessary to to require or to withstand the challenges that we all sort of face during life. Because you know, life for all of us, uh, you know, whether we've gone through addiction or not, the, the, it's big long periods of sort of um, of happiness interspersed with crisis and all these sort of things. And for a lot of us, we're just not equipped to cope with them. Um, and quite often, this is what sort of um, it's an emotional distress or emotional sort of upset that leads to relapse and takes people back to that point again. So 
Um, it's almost like we're sort of, we're getting people clean and sober and then pushing them out the out the sort of treatment service door without the skills to cope. And this is why so many people then re-enter sort of treatment. I mean, I, I've been working in the field for 15, 20 years and, and a priority for the Welsh Government remains um, stopping people from having to re-access treatment again about stopping this revolving door, um, this sort of cycle. And this is 15, 20 years later on, it's still a priority for them because we... we Sort of, um, like I say, we're just we're not equipping people to, to to maintain or even to develop abstinence within the community. It's all based around this sort of treatment model. Is the Welsh government are they a bit more progressive in relation to this um, than other parts of the UK? Do you know, James? I th- in my opinion, yeah. I, I think obviously I would sort of look at Scotland as 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 the real outlier. Really, I think they were sort of. Um, I think in terms of sort of pushing a recovery model and 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 sort of the way that they're, they're looking at everything, I think they're. Definitely sort of further ahead. I think Wales, I think, again, it's just part of one of the benefits of being of a devolved government, really, that we're not kind of led by pressures from Whitehall and and Daily Mail readers who who sort of, um, do you know what I mean? Um, So, yeah, I I think we are there, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, But I do think that that sort of devolution gives us the opportunity to, to kind of to implement recovery more, but also things like drug consumption rooms and things like that again, because it's, for me, it's all part of the same journey, but, you know, people in active addiction, um, you know, they're just people who haven't heard a recovery message yet. So we need to keep these guys alive while we give them the opportunity or the time to hear the message that we've got. So James, Sophie, you're both part of North Wales Recovery Community and we've mentioned earlier on the peer-led approach. So I want to learn just a bit about the community. Sophie, can you tell me a bit about how the community's structured, how it works, your role in the community? Yeah, so um, the community is basically structured. There's, um, you know, the organisation of it is a flat hierarchy. So, you know, all the staff there are, you know, actually in recovery themselves. Um, So I think, you know, for me personally, coming into that sort of um, environment just meant that I trusted them a lot more than I trusted a lot of other people that I'd tried to seek help from previously because, you know, they didn't really understand where I was coming from because, you know, addiction isn't really... Um, I don't think it's very understood on the on the medical side of it as such. So coming into that community, you know, immediately you've got the trust there because everybody there understands what you're going through. Um, and also because of that, you know, all the other people who are accessing the services there, um, you know, they've done or experienced a lot of things that you have. So, you know, there breeds the honesty. Um, you know, it's such... It's su- such there's so much stigma attached to addiction that, you know, it's really difficult to be honest with people um, because of the reactions you may get or the judgments and everything else. So then, you know, coming into a place where you can be completely honest about it, that's when you can really start working on it um, because, you know, you've, you've got it out there then. You can start focusing on it. You can start, you know, implementing tools and, and different things, you know, start putting them into place Um to then live a life in recovery, you know, being led by people who have gone through it as well. And, and you mentioned stigma there. Now, I don't want you to tell me anything about your previous treatment or anything that you're not comfortable with, but in terms of the medical model, does that stigma, does that exist in the medical model in a way that it doesn't exist in the recovery model? Um, yeah, I would say so in a sense of um, it's, um, it seems to be that it's understood as a choice um, with the medical model. You know, you, you go and seek help from a professional and then they might say something like well you need to stop drinking and taking drugs and then we can help you but they don't tell you how to do it 
so in terms of the recovery model it's looking we're talking james mentioned about looking at you know support going forward you know to help a person stay clean in terms of looking at the the traumas that may have led somebody to have addictions in the past does the recovery model look into those um, aspects yeah, um, for us, kind of what we sort of do is we tell people, uh, I mean, we have an on-site counsellor that works with us. She works with four individuals at a time. Um, but what we sort of do is that we, we say to individuals that the best off getting six months abstinence under the belt first, because quite often uh, anything that's revisiting trauma just kind of opens up all wounds. And, and as we said before, emotional resilience isn't something that we're actually blessed with as addicts. So we kind of sort of say to people to focus on on achieving six months abstinence first. And during that time, you'll have established some coping mechanisms, developed some emotional resilience, a positive support network of people, which will then allow you to, to go through this process. Because like I say, counselling is difficult for everybody. So we kind of get them strong focus stable within recovery first and then to then go on and look at this sort of um this approach i mean again i think it's one of the trauma in particular is one of the areas we, we probably sort of lack a lot um within the sort of uk i think if you look at sort of say like the australian model the, the way that they kind of view it that they look at the trauma sort of being the primary issue and then addiction quite often just being a symptom of that a, a way that people cope or manage sort of uh, you know with the, with the sort of trauma that they've encountered so again i think that's something that we need to to, be, to get better at in this country really because again i think that that stigma thing uh, quite often especially when people have been in treatment for long periods of time um you know in, in north wales for example we've, we've got a cohort of of long-term problematic opiate users a lot of whom went through the North Wales care system when it was um, riddled with institutionalised abuse, etc. And some of these guys I've worked with them that have been, you know, were, were abused horrendously, but people never don't no longer see that. People don't see the, the damaged, abused child. They just see the heroin addict with 20 years of class A drug history behind them, really. So, um, I mean, the, the stigma is huge. I think just to come back to the thing you said about the medical model, Andy, when you look at the sort of cycle of change model, the NHS have actually sort of adjusted that and built a relapse component within that. So it, it kind of, it doesn't ever really sort of look or, or appreciate that people can make the change and make it last. It's almost assumed or presumed that relapse is part of the, the model for people. Can I just add on you? I think it's probably important not to just call it the medical model all the time. You know, um, for, you know where we come from in terms of social work and social care, we also end up just responding to individuals in crisis far more than we do prevention stuff. Um, and I think what happens is that um, everyone gets looked at or viewed as their drug and alcohol use is the problem. Um, and whilst it's become really problematic and made a mess of people's lives, it's invariably the coping mechanism. It's, it's maladapted. It's a poor way of coping. It's, and, and I think what the recovery model is about is, is actually trying to stop having a conversation with people about them being an alcohol and drug user at one level and say, how are you going to start to be a, just a better person? How are you going to live your life? Yes. Uh, and I think we don't do that in a lot of professions, not just medical professions. I, I, I think we just want to tick the box from the presenting problem, uh, the societal point of view, rather than begin to think about what the person needs. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not the best person to judge on this, obviously, Sophie and James are, but I, I, it's important to extend it beyond just the medical model. It's actually about quite a lot of professionals just saying, 
sort this immediate problem out and everything will be okay. And of course, what we know and the work we do is actually anything but that. You know, that's just the breathing space to then, as, as James says, to then get on with the other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And always happy to be set straight, Wolf. Um, the only thing, the point you're just talking about maladaptive means of addressing a problem. I mean, if somebody hasn't been provided the counselling or, you know, the help they need to work through, you know, a traumatic experience, problematically using substances, you, you say it's maladaptive, but that may be the only route there is in, in that context. It's the only route that's been learned or it's the route that's been acquired. Okay. Yes. And, and what we're talking about is adopting you know james has talked about emotional resilience and we're going to go and talk about physical and health resilience and and appreciating different things in society you know and you know maybe sophie's best to say about what are the new things she's gone on to do instead of drugs because that's the answer what are the new things that you go on to do uh, you know um yes the underlying problem may still be there and it may never be resolved for some people and that might be okay if the alternative behaviors become much more healthy just before we move on, though, I want to ask, uh, and James had mentioned opiate use in, in North Wales. Is there a particularly difficult situation in terms of um, substance misuse in North Wales, James, or is it fairly typical of anywhere in the UK? Um, I, I think, obviously, these, these, you know, each area's got its own sort of little cultural sort of um, sweets, but it, it's fairly sort of, um, you know, it's fairly across the board, really. I think one thing we haven't really sort of um, encountered problematic sort of spice usage to sort of like it, as other, other areas of sort of North Wales I've like Wrexham was really blighted with it a couple of years back it was sort of everywhere and I, I think we've kind of been quite lucky in that regard but um, it's pretty much the same right across the sort of patch really like I said apart from, I mean when I first moved to Bangor 20 odd years ago it was all basically it was opiates or, or amphetamine um, there was a massive like Northern Soul community that were all sort of still going really and, and all big into amphetamines but that was more like a sort of social non-problematic drug scene um, but the opiates sort of scene's always been quite, um, yeah, quite quite pronounced. Uh, I'm not sure if it's disproportionate or, or if it's just more visible, more noticeable. We have a very visible addict presence um, in or around Bangor. It, it's kind of, it, it was un- unusual for me. I come from inner city Manchester and, and there, even though addiction is, is as prevalent, it, it's a lot more subversive. It's not as so- socially acceptable. Addicts get a really, really hard time sort of on, on sort of where I grew up. Of course, James, we still have the primary drug that everyone has, which is alcohol, of course. Yes. Yeah. Sophie had mentioned earlier on in terms of peer support, you know, how important it was that, you know, when you're engaging with somebody in the community that they understand what you've been through and they're not judging you. In terms of peer support as well, I'm keen to know if somebody is leaving, you know, breaking contact with previous communities, um, maybe they're not in contact with their families. How important is that peer support then in that context? Massive. I think it's, you know, if... Coming into recovery, you know, it is inevitable that you you would have to not see certain people, you know, um, not go to certain things, you know, change your environment. Um, And then to have that environment in which you can still have a life, still have a social life. You know, we are social creatures. We do need that, you know. Um, And I think, you know, to have positive um, people around you who are all have the same goal, you know, all all looking out for each other. Um, You know, it's it's sort of peer support based not that's not based on selfish gain which I think you know in addiction your peers you know it it can be based on selfish gain i.e you all want to take drugs drink alcohol whatever um you know and it's not necessarily about what can we do together to grow and expand etc etc 
In terms of the challenges then building a life away from the problems caused by substance use, Wolf had mentioned just a few minutes ago about, you know, examples of of, uh, basically taking a different path. What's that look like for you, Sophie? So, I mean, for me, I... um I mean, I was worried initially. I thought like my life would be over if I, you know, if I'd stopped drinking and taking drugs. I thought, you know, that's it. There's going to be nothing to do. I'm going to be, I'm just going to have this void um, because I didn't know any better. And, you know, that's one thing that North Wales Recovery Communities gave to me. You know, it gave me the knowledge that actually this there doesn't need to be a void at all. You know, I can fill that with things. So, you know, we all started sort of running together and, you know, completed a half marathon. And we, you know, there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of things going on. There's, you know, there's been um, like writing groups that, you know, I've been involved with. So, um, you know, that's just been um, sort of community, community led, community led writing groups um, and, you know, all sorts of other things. And I think we're quite lucky in where we live as well. You know, we've got the mountains, we've got the lakes, we've got the sea, we've got the beaches, you know, and everything else. So a lot of um, a lot of my recovery has been outdoors. Um, and, you know, we've all been able to to be outdoors and enjoy nature and the environment that we're in. Wonderful. And we're going to get on to that shortly. I'm just uh, curious, what are you writing? Um, I like to write poetry. So I just write bits and bats here and there. So, yeah. OK. Is there anything you particularly enjoy reading that inspires you? Um, yeah. I mean, I like I like reading a lot of science fiction. Um, that's always quite okay. fun to read. Okay. But, yeah, I like reading bits and bats of everything. You got any recommendations? Uh, Time's Arrow by Martin Amis. That's my favourite book. <laughs> okay okay mm. wonderful thanks for that now before we move on there's, there, sorry just for you there's a little connection with what Sophie said with where we started of course if you think about trying to commission recovery and, and, and Sophie says well North Wales we've, we've got beaches you know and we've got lakes and we've got places to be outdoors if you're going to have a recovery group in inner city London you've got to think differently about what that recovery group's going to look like it might be museum based or gallery based or do you know what I'm, I'm saying so there's a connection there about the the place where you're where you're doing this stuff if that makes sense absolutely. Andy yes absolutely which which can't be universal yes just, just to echo that the sort of wolf said I think one of the things that we did when we, we sort of we first sort of devised the, or the concept for North Wales recovery communities was this idea of sort of asset-based community development we knew what we didn't have. We didn't have any money. We didn't have any support from commissioning. We didn't have didn't have a lot of stuff. But we, what we did have was knowledge, know how, and sort of, you know, fantastic natural environment, really, and, and sort of you know, just kind of sort of utilizing that as much as possible. Just trying to get people out into the outdoors, away, sort of just change the headspace. You know, offer them something different, just to look at and to feel and to be part of. Um, you know, we we massively blessed, like sort of all said, when you sort of compare what it must be like for sort of people, you know, within that sort of inner city environment and, and sort of how you would try and grow a group like this in that sort of... So I, I don't know if it would be possible is, is the honest answer to that because, like I say, we were just able to fall back on natural resources a lot of the time. Now, let's talk about the recovery walks that happen in, in the beautiful uh, environs of North Wales. So peer support is at the centre of the recovery model. Um, peer support is also at the centre of the recovery walks. Um can you tell me a bit about the walks? Who's been involved um, and how do they fit into the recovery process? Um, we've done them over about sort of past five or six years now. Um, the first major one we did was Hadrian's Wall. Um, and that was kind of sort of, it was something for me on a personal level. I'd always wanted to do it. I've got a big interest in history, Roman history and stuff like that. Um, and Wolf had walked it previously with his daughter. So it was kind of something that, that had appealed to us. But um 
I think that the kind of the fundamentals, the reason why we do it primarily is sort of um, is to give people a reference point in sobriety. Sort of, as addicts, we crumple, we lack this emotional resilience, and we give up when when things get you know tough and and we start to suffer physical pain and all this sort of stuff. So we, we crumple quite easily. So the idea is that we take these guys out. To walk 20 miles in, in one day is tough, but it's not, you know, it's doable for most people. But to get up and go and do that five, six, seven days on the bounds requires people to go through the wall, to go past what they think they're actually physically capable of doing. And at that point, the only thing that gets them out of bed or the only thing that gets them going, that makes them go through that last mile or two is that support and that comradeship from, from other people in recovery. So again, it kind of takes it right back to that very sort of simple concept of recovery as being something that only you can do, but you can't do it alone. And, and these expeditions sort of work on the same basis. So... That's the internal sort of reasoning. The external one is about tackling stigma. It's about making recovery visible. When we first started this in North Wales, about 12 years ago now, there was no visible recovery. People had got well, but they'd gone off to, to sort of the South Coast, Riyadh, Riviera, Torquay, Bournemouth, got well and stayed there, and nobody had ever come back, so there was nothing to grow it off. So the idea for us was about actually sort of trying to make recovery visible and, and to show people because... When you're in the midst of addiction, you just don't think there's a way out. You think that that you'll never get past this, you'll never overcome this. So to actually meet other people, and again, this comes back to that concept of why we only employ people that are in recovery ourselves, because it just makes it doable. People look at you and think, well, if you've done it, I can do it. And the same sort of thing, again, when we're sort of doing these walks, it's to to sort of show the, the general public that not only do we get well, so not only can a leopard change its spots, but a leopard can change its spots for stripes if it wants to, and then goes on to do something far bigger, far better than your average Joe in the street who hasn't in, who hasn't encountered addiction issues. You know, we can do things that they're not capable of doing. So again, this is why we do these half marathons and and all this sort of physically sort of pushing people to the back, just show them what they're capable of and, and not being confined by the constraints within the head and, and sort of courage-wise. And um, yeah, and it just sort of, like I say, it's, it's good for us as a community, but also sort of helps to tackle stigma and just make recovery more visible. That um, notion that, you know, if you can do it, I can do it, James, that kind of mirrors the recovery carrier rule, which is in the community. Just tell me a wee bit briefly about the recovery carrier rule in the community, not on the walks. Yeah, um, the, the first time I came across the concept of recovery carrier, it was, a, it was a paper by a guy called Bill White, who's like sort of one of the foremost addiction academics. And basically what it talks about is, is that some people, recovery carriers, uh, are individuals who can have a disproportionate effect within their social circle. So quite often when we were in addiction, we were like the sort of biggest knobheads. We were the ones who, who'd snort the biggest lines, smoke the biggest rocks, you know, all this sort of stuff. And kind of, you know, people with real strong personalities, but you kind of sort of see that when we get into recovery, we kind of, we have that same effect. So we can drag people along with us just by that sort of strength of personality and that sort of... Um, that enthusiasm and like I say just having like a, a disproportionate effect so it's kind of like dropping a pebble in a pond and as the ripples move out they get bigger and larger and, and sort of um, like I say I, I think if you look at any any lived experience recovery organisation across the UK nine, 90% of them probably more are founded by recovery carriers individuals with this disproportionate effect who've got a message, something that you want to carry, something you want to share with other people and, and are prepared to sort of find a way to develop a platform to be able to offer it. 
There's a really superb short film. Uh, it was made by the production company Eternal Media. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes because I really want everyone who's listened to this podcast to watch the film. And it documents one of the North Wales Recovery Community Recovery Walks. And that was in, it was in North Wales, wasn't it? It's Anglesey sort of area. Yeah, yeah the Anglesey yeah. Cultural Path last year. Yeah, it would make you want to go there. Uh, yeah, it feels like you got that you should have got funding from like the 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 wales um tourist board or something it's absolutely <laughs> beautiful um one, but one of the really striking messages that i took from the film was uh there's a walker and uh, they explained the challenges of the walk um but that that highlighted that recovery is an exciting process and this just comes back to something you were saying a couple of minutes ago james you know before i watched the film i hadn't appreciated that the process in itself could be positive i always thought like the idea of recovery must be only daunting and kind of scary but the idea that recovery is a positive experience um is that experience typical of the people who are going through recovery it is but it's a weird one because at the start like uh, the, the first sort of couple of days uh, it's, it's agony for everybody those first few days of not drinking not using but it, there's a weird point where it's something just kind of clicks mentally and then it you get to a stage where it's then at the start, you cling on with your fingernails not to use, desperate not to use. Then you get to a certain point where it's just easier and life's easier, simpler not to. And it, it's just like a switch and nobody, it's really difficult to quantify and you don't even know it's happening to you until you're out that sort of other side. But um, I mean, you can always tell when thing, things are good in our place or at Penrith House, the, the, the volume when you walk in, there's a lot of laughter piss takings horrendous the music's pumping everything you know it's really really you can barely hear yourself think but that's a good sign everybody's on board everyone's in the right place when things go wonky you can hear the pin pin drop there's nobody there the communal spaces are empty and and like i sort of say i think it's just um again i think it comes back to that idea about why we only employ people in recovery because it just makes it doable and achievable because i think when you get this sort of concept i've got to give up the drink and the drugs and and you just sort of picture a life just sat there being bored and being lonely and, and played by all these sort of troubling thoughts. And then you walk in, you see, hopefully what you see is a lot of really happy, healthy-looking people who are sort of, you know, po- uh, positive moving forward. And I take on real big challenges. You know, we get a lot of people, once they get themselves clean and sober, go back into further education. People like Sophie who then go on to work within the field and offering their sort of strength, hope and experience to other people. Um and, and like I say, I think it just makes it more more doable, but also more attractive as well. So I think people look at this and think, no, it doesn't have to be sort of secluded and, and miserable. This can actually be sort of something that's um, that, that's liberating and, and enjoyable. And, and again, there's this sort of concept of being better than well, that they've sort of done research into people that have gone through addiction compared to, to people, same social demographics who haven't, and they report far you know, greater levels of happiness, contentedness, everything else that comes with it. I think a lot of it's quite simple when you've literally sat there with, with no electric, no food, no nothing, because you've spent your last pennies on drugs and you're still rattling your back out. When you actually rebuild a life with with some kind of some kind of value, meaning, definition again, whether or not that's material goods, quite often it's not really. I think a lot of people recognise the important things in life when they, they come out the other side. But when you sort of you see that and you start to rebuild that life and you just realise that... It, it's recovery you have to give up one thing to gain everything whereas with addiction you know you give up everything for for one thing do you know what i mean absolutely so for you've been on the walks you were on that last one or the one i mentioned that was filmed uh tell us about your experience how did you find it oh it was brilliant so yeah um it was just 
the camaraderie and you know just the sort of bonding that we got um because it's different isn't it you know when you're bonding with somebody in the outdoors you know you're walking a long way with them we're all absolutely you know knackered by the third day or what have you and our feet are killing we've got blisters um but you know there's still the whole come on you can do it you know you can go a bit further you can go a bit further and you're seeing people going a little bit further and then you know it's a bit of healthy competition like here and there but um you know, the feeling that you kind of got at the end of each day when everybody just absolutely collapsed. We all sat around and had a meal together and, you know, spoke about the day and had a great sleep, um, just crashed out and then got up in the morning and did it again. You know, it was just, it was just, it was beyond anything else, to be honest with you. You know, it was, as I say, it, it was, it was quite emotional for a lot of people because, you know, we spent so many years just sitting in a room with the curtains closed, not seeing anybody, desperate for something else, but didn't know that we could do anything else and then suddenly we're out in the big wide world in this beautiful scenery with each other you know helping each other along and it's just it's almost like a you know you just got hit by the just I don't know just this whole emotion of like this you know this is what life is you know this genuine connection with people and the land and you know everything else it was just it was just you know like I say I can't I think the film does a really good um a good job at you know giving you a bit of a snapshot of it but it's difficult to put into words i really like that though this is what life is this is what we've been kind of missing um mm. yeah um and i i can appreciate that it, anyone you know spending time in nature especially something like mountains it's a long time since i've been in the mountains and just kind of even thinking about it you kind of start to crave that um just that 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 experience you know so that that connection with the natural world you were mentioning you know previously sitting inside with the curtains drawn you know that change the connection with the natural world that was a significant uh, part of the process definitely I think it's really quite humbling as well you know in addiction it's like you're the sort of center of your universe and there's nothing else around you whereas you know you go out in nature and you see all this spectacular um all this spectacular natural land around you and you suddenly realize that you are not that significant at all you know you are a part of this huge vast thing um you know it's not just you it's you as a part of of this whole and as i say you know to have that connection it's a really humbling a humbling yes. thing i would like to say you are vastly significant in the context of something bigger it's not that you are yes mm. well forgive me that's what i that's the way i would like to think of it no i don't want to tell you yeah um, what to think um <laughs> so Come, Wolf, in terms of the, the, the whole approach then, I'm just aware that you said at the start, talking about inner city, you know, recovering commun- communities potentially and uh, museums and, and the likes. Uh, and I like that idea. But um, in terms of the sort of the extremity of that challenge, uh, the one that, that's been done in North Wales, what can be learned from that that can't be learned in other therapeutic contexts? Yeah, I, I think this is probably important. That, uh, and as you know, I've shared with you that, you know, um, North Wales Recovery Community have now done five of these 100-mile challenges, as James talks about. But that's not the only thing we've done. We've done smaller single-day challenges, haven't we, James? And we've taken different sets of people up Snowden. Um, and we have a second um, uh, group that existed in North Wales for about 10, 11 years, which I had a privilege of joining, uh, you know, once a month, um, which was known as DARE, which stood for Drug and Alcohol Recovery Expeditions. And we used to take people, you know, um, do some fairly extreme mountaineering with people in recovery. So not only have we done the long distance walking, but we've done these challenges of taking people to the top of mountains up quite difficult climbs, even in winter and snow. 
know. And I think the answer to your question is, what, what does this offer that it doesn't offer? Right? I, I think there's some simple, there's this very simple metaphorical thing about if I can do this, I can do my recovery. So I think that's something you couldn't necessarily do in a museum. You couldn't say, oh, just because I've been to a museum collectively and had a shared space, it's got the same symbolism with my recovery. But if I've done this, if I've done this challenge, I can do recovery. If I walk to the top of the, you know, to, to, to the top of the mountain, it, it, well, I, I can climb my own personal mountain. So I think there's all those metaphors in it for people. And I think that's really important. But I think actually what really goes on and what's harder is that invariably the group is away from the rest of society, but is still a group. So you get this lovely group process, but the best moments for me in all of it are when we're sat down, 10 or 11 or 12 of us, and we're sat down somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and we're just, you could call this really simplistic analogy stuff, but we're just sharing a loaf. You know, we're just sitting having our picnic together, and we're just talking the stuff. Um, and it's somehow so much more enriching and fulfilling them when that's done inside a classroom yes done like you would do with a formal piece of group therapy or, or or done in a space where there are lots of other people and you can't just be reflective kind of in the moment and with the people so i think i think it does all of that stuff yes um but the other thing it does um and I think this is really important and it doesn't happen in other spaces is when we do these really big walks and when we do the mountaineering walks, we, we have a, we have another rule uh, and the group only ever goes as fast as the slowest person or something. So it's always a collectively shared exercise. And that's absolutely critical part of the, the process that you've heard Sophie talk about, going on this journey with other people. And I think in the urban environments, people will just disperse. You'll actually be a group of 10 or 12 people out for the day, but there'll actually be a group of three people there, a group of four people there, a group of five people. You, 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 you can't escape that. You, you know, when you're on a walk, People don't walk out of sight if you're up a mountain, you know, all that sort of stuff. So there's lots of little bits that it adds a whole extra level, if that makes sense. I've not captured all of them, Andy, but that's some of them, you know. No, I appreciate that. In, in terms of even, you know, you're saying that you go as fast as the slowest person, but if the slowest person's carrying a heavy rucksack and that's that's making them slow, someone else takes the rucksack, helps them. Is that, you know... But it's... it can be much more than that. So uh, occasionally it can mean that, um, so both in, in, in the 100 more walks that James sets out to do with people each year and or in the uh, in the mountain walks that we've done with people James there are just some days when the days when the day's objective that we started with doesn't get finished because it's more important that we stay together and support people on the journey than we get to some egotistical end point just because we set that as being the end point for that day and that's really, really important. So sometimes it's not about the heavy rucksack. Sometimes we've just got someone with us who, for one reason or another, just we aren't going to be able to carry them there today. But let's carry them as far as they can. And then let's all come back and come back and do it another day. And that, that's really important. So it's a metaphorical heavy rucksack they're carrying. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's not the physical rucksack itself. We can carry that for them. Yeah. But... In the film, there was uh, one of the interviewees, um, she mentioned that she was apprehensive about taking part in the recovery walk um, because she was worried that she'd end up in pain and that when she was in pain, she would crave drugs. Now, 
is that a risk that needs to be taken into consideration when you're when you're planning these walks? Yes, but it, it's also something that we're we're actively sort of looking for as well. Um, like I say, what we want to do is we want to take these guys out into deep water. We want to sort of take them to a place where they are uncomfortable and sort of. Um, and again, just to sort of challenge, challenge some of these preconceptions that sometimes that the, the concepts of pain, like I say, uh, I mean, that's that's just addiction in a nutshell. It's just the avoidance of pain for a lot of people, especially those who are sort of trauma based. But it's this idea that not all pain is bad pain. So sometimes that, that sort of, you know, we can sort of, again, we take people out, we, we half kill them, we knacker them, but actually show them that, that sort of... So it's like when you're in the gym, you get that burn in your muscles. It's a similar kind of thing because they know it, they've earned it. They've kind of almost earned that pain, if that makes sense. And it's, it's sort of, but they don't have to crumple through it. It doesn't have to be a negative. It can actually be a positive something to embrace. Um, and again, just to touch on that bit that sort of Wolf was saying about sort of walking as as sort of slow as, as the slowest individual that's there. The idea for these walks is not to get 15 individuals to walk 100 miles. We might have a group of 15. We might get two or three at the end of each one who actually walks it. But it, it's like it's the team component. It's almost to view it as like a relay. That Even if you come out and all you can do, some person could go out and walk 20 miles a day, five days on the bounce. Fantastic. That's brilliant for them. We Some individuals can come out and can barely walk two or three miles. That's as much of a challenge, if not more, for them than it is for the individuals who are physically fitter who walk a lot. So again, it's just about everybody literally leaving everything out there, giving everything that they can give. And that, that all works on different scales. But as long as we get one person who basically completes the whole thing then we've all completed it if that makes sense i was thinking about the, the name i'm going to call this episode and i'm aware that um sophie and james you're both uh, mancunian now i believe you're both city fans so <laughs> you'll you'll never walk alone can i get oh, away with <laughs> not quite okay no well let's yeah um, I'll, see how, I'll see how brave i'm feeling um. when i do it um now <laughs> Wolf, if, if we can generalise here, I want to know about the level of knowledge among the wider social work profession, you know, of peer support initiatives to assist recovery. Is this model still kind of very niche or is it is it widely understood? I, I, I don't think it's known enough that they, we can be very, very clear of that. I think I, I think social care and social work professions still kind of have a sense of what they think of as uh, uh, treatment provision. I think they fully understand that there are peer-led support groups out there that are um, there to help people change their drinking and drug use behaviour. And we even have that in North Wales uh, recovery community. So there will be things, not just AA, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, but there are other models that social work will be aware of, things that often they're called SMART or, uh, for, you know, peer-led um, cognitive behavioural groups, all that sort of stuff. So I think they're, they're aware at those sort of levels, I think. Um, I think people's understanding of the value of recovery communities less so. There's a little bit of reluctance of that, of course. You've got a lot of social care professionals, criminal justice professionals who really want to encourage drug and alcohol users not to mix with other drug and alcohol users. So the idea that actually the best place for a, a you know drug and alcohol user to be is actually with other drug and alcohol users, albeit those that have made some positive change, isn't always the right psyche um, to understand. Um, I think the other issue is that pockets of genuine recovery communities that are beyond the, the the treatment provision or even you know that are purely peer-led organizations 
you know, in the way in which North Wales recovery community is like James's. And we have one other really strong example in Wales, which is called Recovery Cymru in South Wales. But they're the only two in Wales that we would name as uh, as really strong examples. So we've got two in Wales. I reckon is probably 15, 20 in England. There may be like, you know, 12, 15 in Scotland, as, as James has said. They're not everywhere. They're not even in every professional's patch or doorstep, yes? Um, so they're very likely to not be aware of it in those instances and may not yet still. Um, and they have a different role then to begin to help people think about how they might start to create some of those communities and legitimise and support that activity rather than frown upon it. It's supporting the association rather than thinking the association is unhealthy. And you heard earlier from Sophie how important that association actually is. It's the opposite of uh, being unimportant. It's critical in a way. And is that the message you'd want listeners to take away? I mean, I know that not every social worker who is listening to this is going to be able to facilitate any sort of the big you know, events like the recovery walks. I'd want social care staff to take three or four messages away from hearing these kind of conversations and watching the film. I, th- I think one is to understand that that change is possible. Uh, two, that change really only begins after the professional's initial milestones of abstinence or no criminal behaviour or children attending school have been achieved. That's not the end. That, 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 that's, that, that's the beginning. So I'd want them to hear that. Um, I'd want them to find out if they really do have a genuine peer-to-peer recovery community. And if so, really think about the role that they can have with that. Um, and where they don't, um, and, and they've got some influence, begin to shape uh, uh, the possibility for some of the, you know, the drug and alcohol money that's in their community to arrive in a different place, you know, in many ways, not just all sitting in a methadone budget. It's a bit simplistic, but, you know, let's let's get it into another place. Yes. I'm sure the others would have some other messages they'd want professionals to, to hear. <laughs> Please do. James, Sophie, if, we, if we're just going to wrap up shortly, but if you want to have the last words... Yeah, just for me, I, it, it, the, the message would be the same as I first heard it, like I say, going back to the end of the noughties, basically just take people to meetings, have a look in your area. There's, you know, lots of open meetings where professionals can attend and, and just kind of make that linkage, um, you know, find out what's what's available on your local patch and just get people linked in with this. Because like I say, that's the, the beauty of of recovery really is that we'll do everything else. All we need is the actual introduction and we'll, we'll kind of, we, we provide everything else uh, that, that sort of, you know, that the individual needs, um, you know, not just in terms of the knowledge, but in terms of the actual fellowship and a, a support network of people who understand exactly how you feel because we've all been through similar kind of sort of uh, issues. So yeah, just get people to meetings basically and just, you know, it, it's, it's as simple as that really. Yeah, I totally agree with that because, you know, the... Um getting abstinent a lot of the time you know you get abstinent and then it's just now what but there is a now what you know there is there is recovery there is fellowship there are meetings and these meetings are free there's no waiting list you know you can go there whenever they're on they're open to everybody so it takes a lot of pressures off you know other services as well so um you know just get to meetings find your fellowship find your tribe and sort of go from there Sophie, James, Wolf, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I've learned an awful lot and I know that listeners are going to learn a lot as well. Thanks so much for coming on Let's Talk Social Work. 